0: The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome to The Nectar Corridor, a podcast where we explore the incredible world of Mezcal, the most emblematic and diverse spirit of Mexico. I'm your host, Nikki Nagazawa. For this episode, I visited my colleague, Félix Monterrosa, at his Mezcalería Cuish, located in the center of Oaxaca, near the Central de Abastos Market. Félix was one of the pioneers in integrating production with tasting and bringing the concept of a mezcalería to life. He was also part of the Unión de Palenqueros and has a deep love for the history and tradition of mezcal, of which his family is an important part. A quick note about a term that Félix uses throughout the episode, expendios. Expens are like small storefronts or outlets where our mezcal is sold in bulk. This podcast was originally recorded in Spanish. Our conversation with Felix is interpreted by Jose Luis Perez.
2: yo ya nací ciudad Oaxaca.
1: I was born here in the city of Oaxaca. My mezcalería Quish has been around for 13 years now. And our goal is to spread knowledge and appreciation of the complexity of traditional mezcals. I come from a long line of mezcaleros in Matatlan. My great-grandfather, Don Luciano Monterosa, worked as a producer, but it was his son, my grandfather Pedro Monterosa, who set up the palenque. Unfortunately, he was only 43 years old when he passed away. But during his time, he really helped pave the way for my uncles to commercialize their mezcals. A lot of them opened mezcal expendios in Matatlan that still exist today.
0: Mezcal has had a complicated history in terms of production and distribution. But as Felix explained to me, in the 70s and early 80s, there was much more product being sold to the end consumer in bulk rather than what we see nowadays. So how much mezcal was being produced in his uncle's palenques?
2: It's
1: a little difficult to gauge, but what I've heard is that during the boom of Mezcal, the commercial route for our family was in Tehuacán, Puebla, which is in the state north of Oaxaca. That was our most profitable market. In just one weekend, so Friday, Saturday and Sunday, my Uncle Jose's and my Uncle Melcho's stores will sell 2,000 liters People would line up with containers that could carry 25 liters. This was in mid-1970s and they would have lines around the block. I asked my uncles if they had any photos of people waiting in lines. They told me that back then, cameras were used for important events like weddings, but I think this was a really important thing too.
0: Although business was booming, there was still the underlying issue of high taxation and ludicrous fees placed on mezcaleros and their expendios in Matatlan, Tlacolula, and Oaxaca, which are all cities in the Mexican state of Oaxaca. If
2: you ask the oldest
1: mezcaleros, there was a massive effort to keep taxes high in all the mezcal-producing areas. They were persecuted by tax collectors who were essentially thugs who harassed them for control of alcoholic beverages back then there wasn't this concept of culture of maguey mezcal gusto histórico etc it was alcohol plain and simple and in matatlan there were checkpoints where they would charge you depending on how much mezcal you were transporting so if you cared 100 or 200 liters they would charge you in order to be able to pass This was later discovered to be big Mezcal producers who were bribing officials in order to establish a monopoly in this area.
0: Félix's grandfather fled from the authorities by hiding in his barrels so that they would not find him, and then he could continue on his way to transport his Mezcal to
2: Oaxaca. My uncle
1: Cornelio Monterrosa wrote a book in 2004 that exposed all of his government corruption and there are even photos dating back to the 60s that show the effect of this taxation. All along the Matatan highways nowadays you can see working palenques and mezcal expendios, but back then it was completely barren. People could not set up their businesses.
0: I asked Felix if mezcaleros back then needed a license to have a working palenque, or if there were fees associated with the transport of the mezcal.
2: What I heard
1: from my uncles is that the charges were for transportation licenses and fees collected per number of liters. You will have to declare everything at the checkpoints and will have to pay upon arrival to sell in the cities. It's also important to mention that around the late 70s there was a strong movement forming to combat these officials. Some people chose to stay out of it for fear that it would cause them even more problems. But the more fervent activists fought not only against the taxation, but against the harassment they faced from government and commercial producers. They went all into this movement. They traveled to Mexico City, approached the Director of Treasury with evidence of all this corruption.
0: All alcoholic beverages in Mexico are subject to taxes, but through the YEPs, which translates to special tax on products and services, there's an additional tax placed on beverages with an alcohol content higher than
2: 53 percent.
1: It was like a tax haven where mezcal was sold in bulk without much problem. My family used to sell mezcal in hand-painted recycled bottles. It was a whole family production. And at some point, I started noticing that the family business was divided in two paths. On one side, there was my uncle Melchor, who was interested in taking the quote-unquote tequila road. He wanted to go into a larger industrial production and set up a large business. And on the other side, there was my uncle Cornelio, who was focused on artisanal mezcal and preservation of traditional mezcal made from 100% maguey. He is the founder of the Unión de Palenqueros and he was a massive influence for me and my mezcalería Quish.
0: According to what Felix tells me, the massive adulteration of mezcal began in the 1980s by a couple of families in Matatlan who began to blend mezcal made with 100% maguey with cheap sugarcane alcohol to lower the price per liter to
2: the end consumer. Adulteration ruined
1: everything. The prestige of traditional mezcals, the maguey farmers, those who make pictures, those who sell firewood, the whole chain of production. It also influenced the migration of a lot of mezcaleros. My parents had their mezcal storefront from 1984 to 1992. In the late 80s, they started noticing that some producers were opting for these lower quality products. It seems like they thought it was an easier path, but they didn't realize how it would end up affecting everyone. It degraded the quality of the product so much that sales shut down and as a result, my parents ended up emigrating to the United States.
0: Félix showed me a photograph of his parents in the mid-1980s during the heyday of production. He described how things were before adulteration became a common practice in the world of mezcal production.
1: The mezcal was transported in barrels, it was the sort of thing where a three-ton truck would have barely just arrived and people were already asking for the truck to be shipped directly to them. I mean, it was a really incredible time. That boom really helped our business. And every time I go back to the Palenque and I smell the maguey cooking in the oven, I remember my childhood. You know how when you're little, all the memories are very distant and beautiful? That's how I think about that time in my life. I remember sealing those hand-painted recycled bottles. My cousins and I, I would have competitions to see who could paint the most bottles. And I remembered the sealing wax. You have to be very careful because if it touched your hand, you could get a blister. My uncle Jose's house always smelled like cooked maguey worms with chili and salt. Even though I don't like to drink mezcal de gusano. I love the smells of the worms cooking in the kitchen.
0: So back then, the mezcal blanco would arrive at the family's expendios, and then they would add different medicinal herbs or magay worms before selling the bottles.
2: Así es. Si llegaba blanco, el espadín...
1: The mezcal blanco was mostly made of wild espadín and tobalá, and for mezcal that was made with other wild magueys, they will be called especiales or special mezcals, but the espadín was the most common. And going back to this familial split in production, my uncle Jose also chose the route of artisanal mezcals over commercialization, and he started collaborating with providers from Tlacolula, the Chontal regions, and San Luis del Rio. It gave his mezcal other tasting notes and more complex flavors. And I think that really added prestige to my uncle's Jose's business in Tehuacán.
0: Félix showed me a photograph of his parents in the mid-1980s, during the heyday of production. They're part of his effort to create an archive to preserve his family's history, as well as to understand more about the history of mezcal and its evolution. In this archive, the Mezcal tradition and its modern appreciation of Mezcal converge.
1: So here's a picture of Jose and my other uncle Eusebio in 1974. My cousin still has this famous blue truck in the back. It will transport Mezcal in these huge barrels.
0: I could see the glass bottles in the trucks, along with clay vessels of all sizes. It was a really sweet look, back of the family whose entire life was dedicated to mezcal.
2: And those pictures were
1: originally really sturdy and utilitarian, but later on the quality decreased and the mezcal wouldn't stay as fresh. I would love to be able to find those old high quality clay pictures. I know they don't really make them anymore, but I am really interested in preserving pieces of history like that one.
0: Felix talked to me about his personal experience, and how he let himself become absorbed by the cultura de mezcal, and how at first he didn't necessarily feel called to the profession. But as soon as he decided to get into this world in which he grew up, mezcal became one of his most influential and important teachers.
2: When I
1: was in high school, I had no interest in working with mezcal. But my uncle Cornelio would invite me to meetings held by Union de Palenqueros, which I personally think is an underrecognized association, but was life changing for me. I had been going to meetings for about three years, and it was in 2007 that I realized just how much Mezcal meant to me. What I thought I knew about Mezcal in reality had nothing to do with the real Mezcal. The Unión de Palenqueros was where I learned about the diversity of magueyes and where I met the greatest mezcal teachers. It's surprising how Cornelio was able to bring these producers together. Almost 100% of the mezcal expendios in the state of Oaxaca are from Matatlan, and one of the objectives for this group was to gather and collaborate and sell together. Cornelio also established a pool of money so that people could buy new stills or equipment for their palenque. To this day, I have a still that I acquired through this money pool from the Unión de Palenqueros.
0: As Félix tells us, Mezcal's stories of resistance are brought about by unity in the moments of greatest adversity.
2: There was
1: also an endless fight against authority. These people had the memories of authoritarianism, persecution and harassment in the past. And I remember in 2007, there was an effort to strengthen the regulatory council and the Profeco began to visit the Palenques.
0: The Profeco translates the Office of the Federal Prosecutor of the Consumer. This is an organization run by the Mexican government to ensure the safety of consumer products.
2: It
1: was during this time that I saw the Unión de Palenqueros really rally together to defend their businesses from government imposition. The idea was to seek protection from Profeco and to be able to market mezcal locally as it had always been done. I remember during that time, my uncle Cornelio told my mom that she should open a Mezcal Expendio as well and that's when I decided to start a small storefront in 2007 which then eventually became my Mezcaleria Quiz Those years were so enlightening for me I was surrounded by people who live and breathe Mezcal and I remember learning about Cornelio Perez in Mexico City that was a tremendous discovery for me I first read about him in a newspaper in 2007 and I still have the article because it was so revelatory about the historic taste of mezcal. So my greatest influences are the two Cornelio, Cornelio Monterrosa and Cornelio Perez. And back in 2007 there weren't mezcalerias like we see today, there were expendios, but those were more like storefronts. That inspired me to start something different and more all encompassing.
0: As time has passed, there's been a larger push for the recognition of mezcal as both culture and tradition. Felix mentioned that another great accomplishment has been the recognition of Maestros Mezcaleros. In
2: estos era el mezcalero el campesino.
1: Back then the mezcalero was a farmer, a worker. Now they're almost like rockstars. It's really incredible how much the culture of mezcal has evolved in Oaxaca in the past 15 years. Mezcal is no longer seen as some kind of old folk drink. It's now recognized as a complex distilled spirit full of history, which is a huge step forward.
0: At the end of the Unión de Palenqueros meetings, maestros would share their mezcals through tastings. Felix often participated, and it was there that he decided to call his brand Quiche thanks to a very particular batch of mezcal from the Maguey with the same name whose flavors inspired him. These experiences led him to wonder more and more what it was that he wanted to build, and that's what led to the Asociación de Maestros Mezcaleros Quish Productores Organicos SPR de RL, which was formed by Félix, Berta Vázquez, Francisco García León, and Rufino Felipe Martínez, Today, Félix and Francisco are renovating their entire Palenque in Mihuatlán, and it will soon be open to the public.
2: Sigo y me veo
1: to this day, I'm still learning, but I look bad at myself when I was in high school, and I was uninterested in following the footsteps of my family, and I am really ashamed of that. There was so much I didn't know back then, and now it feels like the more I know, the more there is to know. It's infinite. And I've learned about other distilled beverages too. Whiskey, rum, etc. But I recognize that mezcals are the most complex and it's important for us to continue paving the way for mezcal to reach a level of recognition that it deserves in the world.
0: To finish up our interview, we toasted with a mezcal from Felix's collection. ¿Qué, qué nos vas a
2: servir? I brought this
1: bottle from my colleague, Theodomiro from San Vicente de Cuautitlán. I met him during my visits with Abel Alcántara, who founded Maestros del Mezcal. This is a really interesting tobala from
2: 2017 tobala muy muy interesante desde el
0: 2017 Salud. thanks so much to felix for taking the time to speak with me and to our voice actor jose saludos desde las tierras del mezcal y hasta la próxima The Nectar Corridor is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Nectar Corridor team, producer Jackie Nowak, associate producer Rosina Castillo, editors Andres Jimenez and Max Kotelchuk, and researcher Olivia Mayeda. English translations are by Jackie Nowak, with editorial help from Carlin Crosby and Emily Vizzo. Cover art by Alex Bowman. Thanks to Las Nortanitas de Oro for the use of our theme song, This en el Cielo. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, production assistant and Melissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more video podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone Media at whetstonemedia.com. The Nectar Corridor is originally produced and recorded in Spanish. If you'd like to listen to the original interview, you can search for El Corredor del Nectar wherever you get your podcasts.